Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, as the crisis of separated immigrant families continues in the United States, have the courts set a dangerous precedent of seizing undocumented children for adoption by U.S. families? We speak to an immigration attorney. The idea that we could just take someone's child simply because they are undocumented, we could terminate their rights as a parent, That is not right. And the chief of D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department is grilled by members of the D.C. Council about recent controversial cases of police brutality and misconduct. I think those guys should be fired. They don't represent the Metropolitan Police Department in terms of what I think the Metropolitan Police Department should be symbolizing to folks in the District of Columbia. They should be out. I hear you loud and clear, sir. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Courts and their impact took center stage in D.C. this week as activists organized in opposition to the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Speakers at an impromptu rally held minutes after the nomination was announced on July 9th focused on the impact Kavanaugh could have on abortion rights, what remains of the Affordable Care Act, voting rights, and giving corporations even more power. Senator Bernie Sanders addressed the crowd, shouting over anti-abortion counter-protesters. Are you ready to defend Roe versus Wade? Are you ready to tell the Supreme Court that we think it's absurd that they give constitutional rights to billionaires to buy elections? And then tell women they don't have the constitutional right to control their own bodies. Criminal justice in the District of Columbia was the focus of a hearing of the D.C. Council's Judiciary Committee on Thursday, July 12th. Following a recent controversial stop-and-frisk incident involving the Metropolitan Police Department in Northeast D.C., residents concerned with brutality spoke out. The two-part hearing with a day-and-evening session was an opportunity for the community to discuss recent police-involved deaths of residents, police brutality, misconduct, and what are commonly known as jump-outs, when plainclothes police officers emerge from unmarked cars and stop and frisk primarily young African-American men who are congregating, especially in wards 7 and 8 of the district. The recent incident in the Deanwood community happened in front of Nook's Barbershop on Sheriff Road that has been a part of the community for many years. At the hearing, a video of the incident recorded by a bystander was played and the morning hearing was punctuated by several statements given by black members of the council about their own personal experiences with police brutality. Councilman Trayon White was one of those who spoke. I, as a young man 
who grew up in Southeast Washington, D.C., know what it's like to be vulnerable, to be afraid, to be put my back up against the wall at the hands of this police department. This is not a bad MPD session, but this is about honesty. I was hospitalized twice, assaulted twice by the Metropolitan Police Department, and it's documented. And far too often, I hear uh, the police department say, file a complaint. You know, you have to file a complaint. In 2006 and 2007, I did just that. I filed a complaint with the police department and the Office of Police Complaints. Just about four months ago, the officer who assaulted me, um, I saw him riding on a detail down Pennsylvania Avenue for the president. So not only did I file a complaint and go to the hearings and go through, through all that stuff, go to court, uh, sue the D.C. Uh, government and win, but this officer got a raise who we pay to protect and serve. We'll have more from the hearing later in the show. In climate news, Scott Pruitt left one last foul gift of pollution for the American public before resigning from the Environmental Protection Agency. Pruitt lifted a cap on the number of high-polluting trucks which do not meet modern emission standards that can be manufactured and put on the road. These so-called glider trucks are made by fitting modern truck bodies with older engines. The models are sought after by trunking companies looking to evade environmental protection rules because they are less expensive to run. But these trucks are lobbied against by health experts and green groups because they pollute the air 450 times more than newer truck models. Pruitt's replacement, Andrew Wheeler, a former lobbyist for the coal industry, rubber stamped the changes. Now, before Pruitt considered opening up the loophole earlier in the year, national health groups, including the Allergy and Asthma Foundation of America and the American Lung Association, signed a letter imploring the EPA chief to protect the public from the polluting trucks. These same groups held their fifth annual play-in with children on Capitol Hill this week to draw attention to the link between air pollution, climate change, and the rising rate of asthma and impact on children in the United States. Zuji, also known as Casey Camp Hornick, an elder of the Ponca Nation in Oklahoma, opened the July 11th program with her great-grandchildren on stage with her. We have the opportunity to indeed have our voices heard, to indeed stand up like we did at Standing Rock, like we do in the face of Keystone XL, like we do in Ponca Country, where they are literally buying and selling the air in this thing called carbon trading. So as they, in our homeland, commit aquacide, terracide, herbicide, fratricide, and they kill the very air that our children breathe. And our babies have to suffer with asthma and go into the hospitals all the time. I want to ask us to have the empowerment today to go into where those Congress people are and go into this new administration to be able to tell the next person of the EPA that we're not going away, that we're only going to be stronger, we're only going to be louder, we're only going to be there in their face even more than we ever have begun 
because this is not about human rights. This is not about civil rights. This is about life on earth and life for very earth herself to be able to continue so that our seven generations down the way are going to be able to look at us and say they were the warriors. These are the warriors for peace. These are the warriors for prayer. These are the warriors for the earth herself and all living things. Participants at the rally planned on lobbying members of Congress to enforce and uphold clean air and water laws. In culture and media, the Washington Nationals and D.C. are welcoming baseball fans from around the globe for the 2018 All-Star Week starting July 13th and culminating with the 89th MLB All-Star Game on July 17th. In the World Cup, France and Croatia are set to meet in the finals on July 15th. And the Capital Fringe Festival was underway in D.C. until July 29th. And in movie theaters is the must-see documentary, Dark Money, which details the dangerous impact of unchecked political contributions by billionaires and corporations on the entire American project in democracy, starting on the local and state level. So forget all this hocus-pocus and hysteria over unproven foreign interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. As facts unfold in scene after scene, you'll see that any collusion was right here in these United States. Dark money is definitely necessary viewing. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, international news with Gerald Horn. Stay with us. And every drop counts You can laugh and take it as a joke if you wanna But it don't rain a full week some summers And it's about to get real wild in the half You be buying every yard you can take a bath Heads is acting wild, sipping room, pumping dank Competing with the next man for higher playing rank So now I ain't got time to try to be Big Hank a bank. I need a 20-year water tank Cause while these knuckleheads is out here sweating they guts The sun is sitting in the treetops burning the woods And if the flame from the blaze get higher around higher They say don't drink the water, we need it for the fire New York is drinking that new world No, all that California is drinking that new world Way up north and down south is drinking that new world Used to have minerals and zinc in that new world Now they say it got lead and stink in that new world Through quarters and monoxide Push the water table lopsided Used to be free, now of course you will feed Cause all tanks for they loaded they roll across the sea Man, you gotta cook with it, baby Clean with it That's right When it's hot, summertime You fiend for it No You gotta put it in the iron You steaming with That's right So what they dress smooth and treat this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And now for more international news, I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, I want to first ask you about the tremendous news out of Ethiopia and Eritrea this week when the two countries ended two decades of war, officially. So I want to know what's the story behind the story. Well, first of all, that's not the only good news coming out of Africa. You may have heard of the trip to Nigeria of South African President Cyril Ramaphosa and good relations between Abuja and Pretoria is good news for Africa and good news for the Pan-African community. I should also say that South Africa has signed the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is seeking to build and forge a free trade arrangement throughout the African continent, Nigeria will sign, we hope, within months, and that will be a gigantic step forward for African economies. 
but the lingering issue, of course, is the often tense relations between Nigeria and South Africa, complicated, I might add, by a Hollywood movie, District 9, that was a science fiction production that portrayed South Africa as being bedeviled by Nigerian monsters, not Afrikaner monsters, not huh. white monsters, but Nigerian monsters. In any case, with regard to Eritrea and Ethiopia, this is fantastic news. After a 20-year Cold War, including intermittent fighting, you have had air and phone links restored. This should boost both economies, but it also holds perils for both. I mean, for example, Ethiopia has some of the highest economic growth rates on the African continent and in the world. There's been significant Chinese investment in the Ethiopian economy, particularly in terms of building infrastructure like railroads. But there's also unrest, as evidenced by the fact that there was an attempt, apparently, to assassinate the prime minister, 41-year-old Abiy Ahmed, just a few weeks ago. What's striking about this arrangement is that Eritrea only has a population of about 5 million versus the 100 million of Ethiopia. And it's a quite remarkable story about how Eritrea has been able to keep Ethiopia off balance despite that discrepancy and disparity in terms of population. And also despite the fact that the Eritrean youth are fleeing in all directions, seeking to avoid military conscription, uh, they can be found in Israel, they can be found crossing the Mediterranean trying to seek sanctuary in Europe. But on the other hand, despite the fact that, like many, I'm not a fan of the regime of President Assayas in Asmara, it's quite remarkable how Eritrea has been able to forge diplomatic relations with the United Arab Emirates, with Saudi Arabia, in particular to keep Ethiopia off balance. And keep in mind that another key relationship is with Egypt, which has had a bone to pick with Ethiopia stretching back centuries that has been worsened by the fact that Ethiopia is seeking to build a dam that uh, Egypt claims will challenge its access to its lifeblood, speaking of the Nile River. In some ways, the way Eritrea has been able to maneuver presents a model, I would also argue, for black Americans who also are outnumbered in North America but have not pursued that kind of diplomatic strategy that has been so successful for Eritrea and ultimately, I would say, has been very helpful in bringing these two countries together. Hmm. Well, while we're in the Horn of Africa, I also want to go to Yemen where officials demanded that the United Arab Emirates shut down prisons where former inmates say they were raped and tortured. And these were people, prisoners of war during this ongoing Saudi invasion and attack on Yemen. That is very unfortunate news, I might say, but certainly it's consistent with the outside interference in the Yemeni conflict, an outside interference that I might add is also being contributed to by the Trump administration, which has assisted the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia in terms of the depredations they've been inflicting upon Yemen. Well, speaking of the Trump administration, Donald Trump went to Europe. He's still there. 
as we speak. And actually, I could only laugh when I heard this clip of Donald Trump sounding more like an arms dealer rather than a president. The United States makes by far the best military equipment in the world, the best jets, the best missiles, the best guns, the best everything. We make by far. I mean, that's one thing I I guess I assumed it uh, prior to taking office, but I really learned since being president. So is Europe going to basically lay down for Trump's demands, I'm wondering? Well, this whole story about Trump in Europe represents a massive failure but a predictable failure by the corporate media. Uh, First of all, with regard to the issue of compelling NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, to spend more on arms, as your comment suggested, uh, Mr. Trump basically wants to add to the bottom line of Lockheed Martin. That is to say, this U.S. major arms manufacturer, a charter member of the military-industrial complex, and with regard to his critique of Germany, with regard concerning uh, buying energy from Russia, there he's just carrying water for Texas and Louisiana energy producers, particularly on the field of liquefied natural gas, who are competitors to Russia's Gazprom. Now, somehow that has escaped the attention even of the so-called anti-Trump media, speaking of the Washington Post, the New York Times, MSNBC, etc., Uh, As we've stressed more than once on these airwaves, it's part of a larger scheme by Mr. Trump to sort of unveil a new grand strategy for U.S. imperialism's hegemony, whereby Canada will become a puppet state, whereby the European Union, particularly Germany, will be weakened, and then an attempt to neutralize Russia, on the one hand, softening it up by the United States arming and continuing to arm neo-fascists in Ukraine, on the other hand, trying to entice Russia to turn against its Iranian ally in Syria, and of course to turn against China, which is the big enchilada, the Democrats, of course, are pursuing a more traditional strategy, which is unite with the European Union and Canada against Russia and China. But what I find remarkable is that uh, I was listening to one of your neighbors uh, on the Washington, D.C. airwaves, speaking of WAMU, And they had a program on this precise issue, and they did not deign to have one critic of NATO on the program. There were all these uh, liberal supporters of NATO and so-called anti-Trumpers, and it was quite unfortunate. And it obviously leads to not only a critique of the corporate media, but also to a critique of liberals uh, who do not critique NATO, in fact, bolster NATO, and also those on the left who tail after these liberals. I mean, think about this for a moment. The liberals responded to a right-wing request some years ago to purge those on their left, supposedly because they were pro-Moscow. So the NAACP purged W.E.B. Du Bois, for example. And now the liberals are saying that the U.S. president is in league with Moscow. Some go so far as to say that he's an agent of Moscow, and yet they don't see the irony when then the conservatives who engineered the purge of the left wing in the first place said, so what if he is? Obviously, the liberals are too weak-kneed to confront the conservatives, which also helps to shed light on why Germany might be considering this ridiculous request 
of the United States to withhold Iranian funds that they that belongs to the Iranians themselves. I think there's also a lot of confusion about the trade war. So we should follow up. Uh, this is the first week of the official trade war between the U.S. and China. So what have you observed happening this week? Well, as you know, Mr. Trump has upped the ante seeking to impose tariffs on about $200 billion more of Chinese goods. China, it seems to me, is going to retaliate against a number of U.S. corporations that are making a pretty penny in China. I'm thinking of Apple, Microsoft, KFC, GM, and particularly Starbucks. And a stock tip to <laughs> listeners to on the ground might be that to sell your stock in those particular corporations or short them, because I think that's going to be coming sooner rather than later. I should also say that uh, you should watch what's going on in Western China. There's a restive Muslim minority in Western China. U.S. imperialism is not above seeking to stir up religious zealotry amongst that Muslim minority. And as well, on a separate issue, I have to say I've been watching with increasing concern the fact that military veterans in China have been protesting in recent weeks in front of the Central Military Commission of China, which is one of China's most important institutions. It's headed by President Xi Jinping, and along with being president of the country and head of the Communist Party, he's head of the Central Military Commission, and that latter title might be more important than the other two. So keep your eye on that particular issue. Well, we, we certainly will. I think maybe a couple of weeks ago, we saw a demonstration of Muslims in China at the Capitol when we were out uh, going on our way to the Supreme Court for all the uh, Muslim ban decisions uh, being handed down. So uh, definitely, we'll definitely keep our eye on that. I've been joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. turn to uh, Mr. McDuffie. When I grew up in the District of Columbia, some of my earliest memories of the police were uh, my early years at public school, hearing the side-by-side band, um, officer-friendly program, and growing up playing ball in the boys' club and girls' clubs in D.C., uh, number 10 boys and girls' club in particular, I remember Officer Lynch. Uh, who was always a presence there. Uh, one of my earliest coaches was a member of the Metropolitan Police Department. Um, that changed drastically by the time I become a teenager. By the time I become a teenager, it was the mid-80s, 90s. We had the open-air drug markets. We had 
uh, really record numbers of homicides. And we had members of the Metropolitan Police Department, Park Police, uh, Secret Service. I mean, any law enforcement agency in the District of Columbia seemed to be converging on my neighborhood and the neighborhoods where my friends live. My perception of law enforcement changed during those years. It changed pretty clearly the first time I was arrested. And it changed as I started to see my friends, my own dad, my brothers arrested. Very few people prosecuted or charged formally. Uh, but it was those interactions on those sidewalks, on those blocks, sitting on the stoop, um, that really changed my perception of the law enforcement in the District of Columbia for the worse. Fast forward, uh, when I decided to go to law school, I remember thinking about where I wanted to work. And I'd become interested uh, in trial work and just automatically thought I would try to get a job working for the Public Defender Service. Uh, never thought I would be a prosecutor, ever. Because a lot of my professional experience that I was developing in law school was shaped through the prism of my youth. So those interactions with law enforcement, with those MPD officers, uh, getting thrown on the ground, told to take my Tims off, searched for no reason, told to move, arrested, taken to 5th D, released without being charged, after paying a fee. Uh, that has shaped uh, a lot of what I thought about law enforcement, and my thoughts were not very favorable. When I hear, Chief, you talk about trauma associated with violence, you are absolutely right. I know it firsthand. Same way I experience interaction with law enforcement, I experience interaction with violence in my own neighborhood. But there's also trauma associated with police encounters. Those encounters that I had early on, I didn't know it then, but it was the trauma of my experience. Seeing my friend have the police run into his home without a search warrant, no exigent circumstances, and punch him in the face. Having people be arrested in front of me, uh, not knowing then what the law said about reasonable suspicion or probable cause, uh, but knowing it wasn't right. That trauma associated with police encounters, I think, is what I've been hearing from residents of Ward 5 uh, and across the city, for that matter. Uh, it's a sense of frustration uh, from people who feel like the police department is just really converging on their neighborhoods and is not there to protect and serve. I know that's not what MPD believes in, and I know that there's training that occurs of officers, but in my gut, and I think and the intuition of a lot of people across the District of Columbia is that there's got to be more that MPD can do to build and foster a sense of trust. There's got to be better approaches to uh, community policing that could help move us in a positive direction because when I was at the scene after Daquan Young was shot and killed in Brentwood, I saw the trauma. I saw the trauma. 
when you see as I have, either as a member of this council or as an ordinary black man growing up in the District of Columbia, bodies laying uh, behind yellow tape, there's trauma associated with that. But there's similarly trauma associated with seeing police enter your neighborhood and turning and running when you've done absolutely nothing illegal. It's still happening. It was happening when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. And that is real, tangible trauma that impacts how individuals interact with the police department here in the District of Columbia, as I'm sure it is with cities across the country. And I need to hear specifically what the department is doing to address that. Because at the end of the day, the trauma associated with those police encounters is not going to help solve homicides and other violent crimes when they occur. There was a no snitch culture that existed when I was growing up. And it wasn't even no snitching. It was just don't talk to the police. Just don't talk to the police. So in this position where I sit now, where my job is to represent the interests of Road 5 residents, I have that context. I've also had the opportunity and privilege to work with law enforcement in my career as a lawyer and as a prosecutor. And I know the lion's share of officers do their jobs zealously, courageously, every single day. And perhaps don't get enough credit for that. And perhaps they don't get enough credit because of that perception and the experiences that people are having uh, on in communities across the District of Columbia, like the experience that I imagine those young folks had uh, at Nick's Barbershop. You have been listening to D.C. Councilman Kenya McDuffie speaking at a council hearing Thursday, July 12, 2018. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. We'll be right back after this break. Who want the dance and fi stop? Police! Who now want fi see herbs a shop? Police! Who kill the youths from the block? Police! Them no want fi hear truth, merciless facts. Who want fi see herbs a drive? Police! Had the easiest man for drive. Police! Them no want fi see get to survive. Police! As we see them, get to youth a fi die. Hey yo! Police, who know how to see herbs a shop? Police. 
Welcome back to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And this week, the Trump administration failed to meet a deadline to reunite all separated immigrant children under five with their parents. And another judge ruled that the Flores Act, which provides that children cannot be held indefinitely in detention, will not be amended or changed. Joining me to discuss these and other critical developments in the fate of these families is Ophelia Calderon, a Virginia-based attorney and advocate for the immigration community. She's on the board of Legal Aid Justice Center and a member of the Immigration Lawyers Association, the National Immigration Project, CARE Coalition, and the Dulles Justice Coalition. Thank you for joining me today, Ophelia. Thanks for having me. Well, we have these court rulings this week, but from your experience, what is happening on the ground right now with these parents and children? Well, right now, I mean, aside from the 30, uh, I can't even remember the exact number now, but it's a very small number who have actually been reunited with their children, it remains really chaotic. I mean, you have to think that I was in Texas between June 22nd and June 25th, and it was chaos then, and I'm not sure that I've seen any dramatic change with respect to the reunification piece. When we say chaos, y'all give us some snapshot of what you witnessed and some of the things that you've brought back to, with you in terms of, of your experience. Well, the thing that I think that is most striking, and, and I, I suspect that's going to be the case for any volunteer lawyer that goes down to the, to the border, Texas, Arizona, wherever it is that they're going, is that the, the primary focus for these individuals, who many of whom are fleeing persecution and have terrible stories about terrible things that have happened to them in their home country, and yet the focus is primarily on where is my child. And that's, I guess, what I mean by that chaos, right? You are completely focused on the fact that someone has taken your child, that you don't know where your child is, that you don't know how your child is, you don't know with whom your child is, and you don't know if you're going to see your child again. And that well, is what I saw. I mean, without a doubt, you know, I interviewed a large number of people while I was there. So let's say, I mean, given, if you think about the time constraints in the jail, and how much time do you have, you have to visit, let's say, approximately 40 individuals, so moms and dads. So I interviewed both men and women. And in each and every one of those cases, they had been separated from their child. Each and every person that I spoke to came in with their child. Each and every person that I spoke to was separated from their child. So were you, in effect, uh, becoming a legal advocate for them? Or were you, in terms of interviewing them, beginning to operate as their lawyer? I mean, I would say if I, I would say probably the answer to that is no. I mean, I think in the context of those interviews, I mean, very specifically, actually, there is a, a piece that I say, which is that this is a limited representation to the extent that I'm speaking to you now for the next 20 minutes, and I'm going to explain to you what's going to happen. So to be very clear about it, it's basically a legal rights orientation program. So I'm going to explain to you the situation, explain to you what the law is, explain to you what your next steps are. Then I'm right. going to talk to you about your case in this time period and like what can you do, how can you go forward, how is your case best framed before the asylum officer that's going to come here and ask you why are you afraid, right? So that's really the, the first thing that I was doing. But okay. then it becomes this whole other issue that I think is what's so different about, it, uh, about the current situation, which is, okay, that's fine, but wait, first I really want to know where my kid is. Do you have any idea where my kid is? Do you know how I can find out where my kid is? And, and sure, any of us who are parents or aunts or, you know, grandparents or, you know, understand that, understand that trauma 
and, and wanting to know that, like, that's more important than anything else you can, you know, tell me right now. It's striking when you think about the fact that many people are here because they have persecution, and yet the first thing that, the, the thing that is so important to them is the well-being of their child. Yeah, and I think that for those of us, those Americans who've been out in the streets protesting, that's what they know. Like one person told this show last week that, you know, children are sacred, that these are people who came here with nothing. They have nothing. And you've taken away the only thing they have. Oh, it's like, seems like the, the, the ultimate cruelty, you know. So, you know, we have these court rulings this week, but are children still being separated as far as you understand, or has that at least stopped? To my understanding, it has stopped. That's what they say, right? And so, uh, I mean, what I'm getting back from the border is that there continues to be parents who've been separated from their children. It's just a kind of, it's very difficult for, for one person, first of all, for one lawyer to determine whether or not those are the same parents or are they new parents. And I suppose that these court cases, you know, as welcome as they are, they're not stopping the the whole process where the United States seems to be actually breaking international law in terms of not allowing people to apply for asylum and to present themselves as asylum seekers. Yeah, it's actually very disturbing, right? I mean, it's very disturbing that we allege to be a country of laws and we have these laws. In fact, we do have these laws in place that permit people who are fleeing persecution to apply for asylum. And I'm not sure that I think that that's what's really happening right now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've seen reports about people basically not being able to cross at a certain bridge where they should be able to present themselves as asylum seekers that the United States have basically set up like almost like a bridge block or a roadblock so that they can't step onto American soil to present themselves uh, to seek asylum. So... Is it your understanding that families now will be detained together up until the maximum time that children can't be held? Is it my understanding that that's what's going to happen? I mean, that's yeah. my understanding that that's what the government wants to do. Um, okay. And, of course, they will continue to, as you know, they will. Uh, I, I'm confident that they'll continue to make applications, petitions to the court to extend that time. Okay. Because actually, when I first spoke to the attorneys at the University of District of Columbia uh, Law School and their their immigration project last year, that was the context of our conversation. Because there were already existing these family detention centers, some of which, or at least one of which was in our particular region. I think they mentioned Pennsylvania, uh, you know, southern Pennsylvania or... The Burks facility, B-E-R-K. I believe so. And they, they mentioned that facility. And so we were talking about this long before this new zero tolerance, so-called zero, t- zero tolerance program uh, came into effect. So I think a lot of people don't realize that we've, we've already had these family detention centers. It's just that this new policy of separating parents from their children is what's new.
Yes. I mean, this question is something that's come up quite a bit. I mean, not just I, not just in the press, I would say. I mean, even amongst, you know, my neighbors and colleagues and friends have asked me this question. I mean, is this really something new? And, and the answer is yes, it is absolutely something new. I mean, I'm never going to be a person that would advocate for the detention of families on any level. I, I, I don't see the point in that, and I, I think it's a terrible situation. But obviously, you know, taking this new step of separating parents from their children is particularly inhumane. The government's purported explanation or purported motive for that is to is to act as a deterrent. I mean, it feels much less like a deterrent and much more like a punishment to me than anything else, which is really unfortunate when you think about the fact that you know the that the conditions under which these people travel in order to protect themselves and their children. I mean, it's it's so sad. Has this new policy, this zero tolerance policy? impacted this region in terms of the existing facilities like the Berks facility or new facilities being opened? Well, there's some discussion about that. I, I can't really confirm whether or not there is going to be a new facility, but I understand that there's talks about a new facility in our area. And so obviously that would be a direct result of increased attention of foreign nationals who are caught up in the system. There's also, of course, the effect of detaining minors, right? So this is, minors is kind of a broader subject. You might have discussed it before with uh, UDC. There's the question of unaccompanied minors and when they come in, whether they get detained and for how long. And, you know, there was a story run recently about this facility in the Shenandoah. So uh, to that extent, I think it affects us, yes. Yeah, I don't know if we're talking about the same story, but I heard one report about a lawsuit being filed by a young man who was was either still being held in Virginia or was held, who alleged that he was assaulted. Exactly. So that does affect us. I mean, the the responsibility of detaining people is, is a big one. Right. I mean, this is the United States, and presumably even when we detain people, we are going to detain them in a humane manner, um, in a fair and just manner. And so it's really disturbing to think about the United States government detaining families, women, men, children in situations that are less than optimal, less than uh, legal, really. I mean, the stories keep slowly coming out, like one story more disturbing than the, than the last. The one I heard this week was about this kind of unlicensed office building in Phoenix, I guess, which was, you know, allegedly like holding children in a facility that wasn't really equipped to hold them. And so therefore not in compliance with the Flores Agreement, which requires that any facility that we hold children in be su- subject to, low, for example, daycare licensing laws. Exactly. So... I want to ask you about something that someone shared with me a piece, which I assumed was current, but it turned out to be not current books from like six years ago, where a woman who had come to this country from Latin America was held in detention. And while she was held in detention, her child was put up for adoption. And she fought this, as far as I understand, as far as she could. And... She was never given her, I mean, she never regained custody of her her son. And I bring it up because I keep hearing when people translate for some of the newly arrived people that they are being told by ICE or whoever that this is a new policy and that we're going to take your child and that your child is going to be put up for adoption. Almost like a, like a trauma telling people this. So What insight can you give on this, Uh, either this original case and how that exactly happened? And is that a real threat? 
Is that is that something that could be happening behind the scenes here in terms of these children who may never be reunited with their parents? Yeah, so, you know, that, that question sort of, it's a, it's a compound question, so let me take it piece by piece. So I am vaguely familiar with the case that you're talking about. I was just trying to look it up. I feel like it was Missouri, maybe, or... So, and that case, actually, I believe, just came to the, the Supreme Court in whatever state that is, just came to a decision on that. And the child and, and the, the Supreme Court affirmed the decision to terminate the parental rights of that woman. Uh, and, to, and so the child will continue with his adoptive family. So my very vague recollection of that story is that this was a woman who was undocumented, who was caught up in an ICE raid at a at some sort of, it was like a work raid, so it's at some sort of factory. And as a result, her child was taken from her because she was detained by ICE, and so the child was placed into a temporary foster something situation. And then when the mom was subsequently released, um, custody, at, at that point, the, the family had, I guess, moved to adopt the child formally. And so there was this whole long legal battle over this, and then ultimately the family court terminated her parental rights. So, of course, that's really disturbing. It's incredibly disturbing, the idea that a court could terminate someone's parental rights solely based on the fact that they were, they were undocumented in this country. And it's disturbing given the current circumstances where you have, where we don't even know where these children are, right? Where, we, where we're not 100% sure whether or not some of these children are in shelters. We know that to be the case. We know there are kids that are in shelters. We also know that, for example, my own client, the client that I took on from Port Isabel, her child is with a foster family. And I will say that sometimes these things might be lost in translation. And so I, I want to caution us on this, the business of the adoption piece, because, for example, my own client says that her child is with a familia adoptiva, which sounds like an adopted family, but it is really a foster care, right? It's a foster family. So right. more like a temporary adopt. Like, I think we need to be careful about how that's being interpreted. It's very clear to me that my client's daughter is in a foster family, is with a foster family, is not at this point being put up for adoption. So I can't speak to that as a factual piece because I am not aware of any of the children from our current crisis being put up for adoption. I can say that there are a certain number of children who are in foster care situations, likely because of age. And so that it feels terrifying, I think, for these parents. And I think, you know, if you took it one step further, and again, I don't know for sure this is happening, and so I don't want to rile people up, you know, but I would say this. When you think about the fact that when the government came out on Tuesday or Monday and said that there are, I think it's 19 that they can't place, they can't reunify because those parents have already been deported, it is kind of scary to think, well, what will be the next step if you don't reunify this child with their parent because their parent's not in this country, and now this child is in what care? Exactly. And I did look, while we were speaking, this case was in Missouri, and uh, it was a Guatemalan mother, and the boy was five, five years old uh, at the point when, when they were, I guess she lost the ruling. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's terrifying, and it's a horrible thing for everyone, right? I mean, think about this child who has now been for the last, you know, five, this, I think it happened in 2012, right? So for the last six years, this child has been in, has been with a family. 
Exactly. And he was less than one years old. The infant. He, he was with the adoptive parents in Carthage, Missouri, since the age of 11 months. And then the judge said the biological mother had no rights to even see her child. This is just too much for me. I mean, I have actually, it's funny that you brought it up because I actually have brought it up a couple of times in conversations um, around what's happening, in the same way that you're bringing up. Like, we should be really deeply concerned about this, right? I mean, what's happening here? Like, under what circumstances is it okay to terminate the right of a parent? And it's not like this is a parent who didn't want their child. I mean, she's been fighting for her child from the moment that she was released from ICE custody. Right. Right. So, I mean, it's quite, so I agree. I mean, it's quite terrifying. And I, I believe that even if the parent has been deported, then if they've done that, then they need to, to find a way to reach across that border and then give the child back to the parent there. If you've gone on and deported a parent, you've separated them, then then you still have the responsibility to reunite. I hope that the judge's ruling basically extends beyond the border, that they have an obligation to reunite that parent with that child, even if it means putting the child on in, in custody of a social worker, whoever, to take that child on a plane and take the child back to the parent. It's interesting that, you know, in the midst of this, that Missouri case just, you know, they just came to a final decision, right? So it was just affirmed by the Supreme Court case. And what I think is that that, is, that was an isolated case or it felt like an isolated case throughout the time period that it was occurring. However... Right. Now, in today's context, you have to think that this feels like a violation of a lot of international laws if we're not able to put these children back in the place with their parents, wherever their parents are. There's another case also where uh, a mother lost like four children. So these cases are there and they raise really big, these really big troubling questions. So I guess I want to ask you about the important legal issues to follow now. Uh, The Red Cross released a report also this week talking about the human rights of refugees being denied globally. I mean, we we also have the the tragedy of what's happening as people leave uh, Northern Africa and go across the Mediterranean or or leave Syria and and people flooding into Europe, like fleeing horrible situations, uh, largely often after because of the chaos we left in Libya. And Libya has become this this funnel through which people are going and trying to get to Europe, trying to get to safety. So just some of the larger issues, and I think you touched on it earlier, in terms of the rights of asylum seekers. You know, what what can those of us who care, you know, do right now to push the United States to basically honor international law? I mean, I think, you know, with respect to those of us in the general population, right, I mean, just, just here watching the story, I mean, one thing is to, it's, it's hard to maintain stories past one news cycle, right? But this is something that we can't let go of. So, I mean, one thing is that we need to continue to draw attention to this crisis at a minimum until it's actually, until our current crisis is actually resolved, 
right? So we know that the government, for example, on a very specific issue, we know that the government has not complied with the court's order. We know that they have not reunified all these children. We need to keep on the government until these parents and all these children are reunited with the people they need to, you know, that where it needs to happen. So that's a very concrete thing. That's a concrete ask, right? Asking our con- congressional members, at, you know, making our, our voice known to, you know, to the White House, to, to the administration, to the agencies, like, hey, listen, we're still watching this and we still want this to happen no matter what happens. And then with respect to the global piece, I mean, that I think is a larger conversation that as Americans we need to have, right? That, you know, there is a potential split in this country on what refugees mean and what it means to be a refugee and how open and how welcome we should be to refugees, notwithstanding the fact that people are, as we've discussed, really fleeing persecution and in every part of the world, right? And so there's also, I think, a little bit of like head in the sand, you know, that, that's normal, right? I mean, it, it's, it, it's hard to watch these stories, but we need to maybe ask ourselves, like, what role do we have as Americans? What role does the United States government have in perpetuating some of these situations? I'm not saying that we need to, put, you know, be involved in every foreign policy decision anywhere ever in the world. I'm not saying we have to be the world's policeman, but at the same time, we've already taken action that arguably we are accountable. Arguably we hold some sort of responsibility for a lot of these tragedies. And so we need to talk about it in our communities. We need to communicate with our congressional members. We need to read the real news, pay attention, you know, figure out what is fact and what is fiction. And, you know, most importantly, we, we got to vote. I was looking as we were talking in that, um, there's another case of Amelia Reyes Jimenez. And in 2008, police came to her Phoenix apartment and took away her three-month-old daughter. And the baby and three other children were taken from her. And her son and three daughters at that, this point were living in foster care in Phoenix and were awaiting possible an adoption. And then she was deported back to Mexico her parental rights terminated by an Arizona judge. And a study at that time said a study by the Human Rights Group Applied Research Center estimated that as of summer 2011, there were at least 5,100 children of detained immigrants in foster care in 22 states. So I want to clarify some of those pieces, of course. I want to be clear that there is going to, there's going to be some portion of that 5,100 number, right, that is made up of unaccompanied minors, right? And that's the legal term for children who come over the border by themselves. Right. Right. And so when right. a child comes over the border by themselves, you know, ranging in all of these different ages, and then they're taken into custody, and as you know, we can't detain them under the Flores Agreement for longer than it takes to put them in, in the right place, you know, those kids go to different locations. Right? So some kids who have family in the United States are going to be placed in the care and the custody of those of, of family members that can step forward and take care of them. Those who don't have anyone are going to be placed in the foster care system. So right. I, I want to be careful of that number because I don't know how much of that number is made up of the USC population. Right. I mean, that doesn't take away from the very real stories that, you're, that we're talking about, such as Amelia Reyes and, um, and also the one from Missouri. I mean, that's a very real concern. It's just so disturbing to me. It's just so, it's, it's so... Terrifying. So, it's ter- it's I find so, it interesting that you're the only one who's brought it up. To, you're the only one who's brought it up to me. 
I think that the decision in the Missouri case, the final Supreme Court decision came while I was in Texas, and so it was very striking to me. And mm-hmm. so I talked about it with um, various lawyers that week. Like I felt like this is a real issue. And when you take that and then you put that up against this, the, the, the current crisis, it's terrifying. The idea yeah. that we could just take someone's child simply because they are undocumented. We could terminate their rights as a parent for, simply because the, this parent believed that they needed to find a better life, even beyond the asylum piece, right, for those people who don't believe in persecution. Uh, I guess that's like uh, climate change. But even beyond that, you know, these are parents who brought their children here because they wanted them to have a better life, which I don't think anybody can argue about. And in exchange for that, we terminated their parental rights. That is not right. And it sets a terrible precedent in my mind terrible precedent and just terror for these families and these parents and children and something that we're definitely going to have to keep an eye on. I've been speaking with Ophelia Calderon, a Virginia-based attorney and advocate for the immigration community. She's on the board of Legal Aid Justice Center and a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Thank you for joining me today, Ophelia. Thank you for having me. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Gerald Horn and Ophelia Calderon. The music we played this hour included New World Water by Yasin Bey, Black Man Know Thyself by Femi Kuti, and Police by Anthony B. Our theme song is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes by searching for WPFW On The Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Thank you for tuning in. To everybody listening, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>